You are listening to Dearest Benjamin, a fictional podcast series by Verna A. Ringlander. We will begin right after this. It's you. It's that shit stuck under my shoe. It's that smell inside the van. It's my bedsheet covered with sand. Sitting through a shitty band. Getting dog shit on my hands. Getting hassled by the man. I'm truly sorry if my anger seems distasteful. But my resentment is still so surprisingly strong for all the ways I got blamed for your condition back then. I even heard it in your mother's voice that night. I called her to warn her about that horrible blog post of yours. I might have been imagining things, but I really doubt that. At that time in my life, I drank some, and sometimes way too much, but weed was my world. It was your world too, and sparked such feelings of warmth between us as it had done for so many of my important friendships. It was present at nearly all of my happy memories at that time, far more so than beer or liquor. It's been years since I've been able to enjoy smoking weed or eating cannabis-infused foods, but I gave some tiny bit of chocolate a go when Winnie, Garrett, Ronan, and I went on one last trip together to the Caribbean before we departed for Australia. And it landed me in the fetal position, crying in my hotel bed for an afternoon, instead of the laughter and hijinks I hoped it would inspire. At one point, while I was living in Seattle, I was forced to reckon with the fact that weed wasn't even fun for me anymore. It just created a sense of terror. I thought it had something to do with my increasing levels of tolerance. As with any use of any substance, You have to use more of it to feel good, so I stopped using it. Because the whole point of weed was that it was supposed to enhance my joy. I thought that by having a little after a long time there in Jamaica, that the joy would come back. But instead, it lost me an afternoon on the beach with my beloved friends and family to a panic attack that left me breathless. And an evening to puffy eyes in the haze of eventually rejoining the living for a rejuvenating meal. Which reminds me, my therapist recently asked me, when was the last time I remember being happy? I really hated that question. I don't know what the question is designed to evoke, and that's assuming it's designed to evoke anything, But what it has launched me into is a pretty dark realization that my life is beautiful, rich, satisfying, surrounded and welcoming and unconditional love, yet I am drowning in my own unhappiness. I am one of those horrible people who believes that happiness, or unhappiness as it were, is a choice and that joy is ever-present. And I'm also someone who believes that depression is a disease 
a curse if I'm being honest, because I can see everything and everyone around me as a potential source of joy, and I can experience a life filled with events perfectly intended to grant me continually accessible happiness, then why or how could I ever be so fucking unhappy? I paused for a long time after she asked me this. The answer I gave was the trip to Jamaica I just mentioned, the one with my brother, his wife, and all our kids, with the exception of that horrible day I got high. Honestly though, even though that trip was fun and I'm glad we did it, that was a time of great stress for me because I knew after all the sunshine and fish and sand and beach and surf, that I would be saying goodbye to everyone I knew and moving to a vast country I know nothing about, where I wouldn't know a soul, where it was the dead of winter. It was a convenient answer. The inconvenient answer is that I haven't been happy in a very, very long time. All of this that I'm saying now is what came out in therapy, and I'm afraid to say it aloud to anyone especially the people in my life who love me and care about me. It is my sincerest fear that they would take this knowledge so personally and that it would hurt them that they don't make me happy. Because yes, they are a source of happiness for me, but I am fully responsible for not reaping the benefits of such abundance. Being in pain plays a huge part. Shortly after the move abroad, which has turned out to be an enormous existential crisis for me all these months, that it is just now stabilizing enough for me to not feel like throwing something at a person who pronounces chicken as chicken. Ronan was holding me through yet another crying spell, and he whispered, Hey, I think you're a deeply traumatized person, and you may be experiencing PTSD. PTSD? My brother has that from actual war. All I had was a messy time growing up. Who didn't? Followed by, I think you need to get help. Something Ronan had to say to me many, many times, and with the assistance of a wide variety of his own most unpleasant emotions. Along and the short of it, was that moving here to Australia has made me crazy, but that's not Australia's fault. And even though I tend to project my anger onto Ronan for moving us here for his opportunities and his dream, it's by no mean his fault either. I signed right on up for this adventure, so really, do I only have myself to blame for this lack of unhappiness? That's when I realize blame is such a useless action when it comes to unhappiness, even if it's directed at people who hurt me. Even you, Benjamin. I don't blame you at all. You probably had very good reasons for everything you did, regardless of any sensibilities you or I or anyone have or any judgments we along your journey hold about any of it. And I still ask, why? Benjamin, why? And moreover, as I write this, why do I think you have any answers? Frankly, I am not at all sure that you do. If you respond to this with anything less than solid, reasonable answers, I don't want to hear anything from you at all. This is why I haven't called or written or gone any further than the niceties of arm's length, 
basic social media friendship and joining the annual pylon of saying happy birthday in the comments. I don't even do that anymore. In a sense, even though we're still connected on a social media account I no longer even look at, and you probably have my most recent email address because I haven't changed it in, wow, 20 years or so, I've cut you off until now. Sometimes this whole situation feels like one step away from a terrible stalking problem, but then I remind myself, I don't even know what you look like or where you live or really anything about you at all anymore, and I don't want to. I left social media for a lot of good reasons, and maybe this was one of them. Actually, there was this one night right after I wrote my first play, and because you direct plays for a living, I messaged you to ask you if you'd be willing to give it a read, and you said yes. Thank you, again, for enthusiastically offering to read it, by the way, even though I never sent it to you. Sorry. It felt far too tender. It wasn't even about you, not remotely. It was about my life in Seattle, the wonder and the chaos of finding family outside of my family, far from the lands where I grew up through art and music and self-expression and sex and, well, when I get it published, you can read the rest. It got great reviews from the audience. The cast was impeccable. Winnie was amazing as the director and there was talk of taking it on tour. Unfortunately, not getting it reviewed nor publishment starting from scratch, aside from rewriting the damn thing, which I refuse to do. It's beautiful just the way it is, and I won't change it. As far as the family you find, the family you make along the way, you were that family to me, and you were taken by forces I don't understand. While everyone else in our orbit stuck around, you rocketed off into whole worlds of adult milestones and other self-induced nightmares of modern existence in some sort of adjacent solar system to mine. I have even toyed with the theory that there was some sort of quantum split in our story where we entered into different timelines, and the force of that violence has left a heavy mark on me, and I assume both of us, that I simply cannot shake or wash away. That's how it feels. How it looks on paper is another matter. Maybe that's why I'm so compelled to write it down, because so far, this feeling is so monstrous and wrong and makes absolutely no tangible sense. You are simultaneously a distant, distant memory and someone I frankly do not even know anymore. The wrongness of these obsessive and unwavering feelings completely shadow even my most important life events and relationships with horrendously secret shame. I have been unable to mention you in therapy, which is so fucking ridiculous, because of all things I should bring up in therapy, it's the people and stories we obsess over, the unshakable nature of unpleasant memories, or rather, the overwhelmingly pleasant memories that have grown so bitter and so distasteful over increasing increments of time and distance. I don't feel like this about Leaf or Boris or Dirk, damn it. Entire relationships that had a definitive beginning, middle, and end, and I think that's precisely why. Our ending didn't feel like an ending. Our ending felt like a big, sad, horrible beginning 
that never got to finish and never saw any resolution or closure or even a goddamn apology. And I am certain that too is part of the problem for over 20 years now. There's a chessboard floating in outer space in which the two players reached a stalemate because the only next move was a heartfelt apology that neither was willing to give. Conrad is the only one who has any idea any of this still lingers for me. And that's because other than Gio and Winnie and to some small extent Francesca and well members of my immediate family who couldn't have cared less at the time, he's the only one who was around to see any of it for themselves. But even Conrad hasn't heard me mention this in a good number of years at this point. The last time he did was when we laughingly went and got a couple's massage right before Ronan and my wedding as a bit of a Hindu. And after mine was over, I turned to look at Conrad and just cried my eyes out. We sat in the parking lot so I could calm down. It was raining and poor Conrad just sat there and said, no, I get it. It's okay. Let it out. You need to talk about this over and over again. While I filled the inside of his rental car with tears and regretful lament and then married the man of my dreams with clear, fresh eyes a few days later. In fairness, none of this should matter to anyone as much as it does to me. I have actively resisted feeling this way for so long that it's an old habit, a muscle memory. It's only recently in isolation and in a radical change of scene that's been both an enormous shock to my senses and a blessing in disguise, that I've finally given up on resisting it and have finally begun to process it, play with it, sit with it, rest in the knowledge that my subconscious might know more about me and this story than I think I do, because it's my subconscious that just won't let go. My God, what an ugly, festering wound all of this has left. But why? Francesca, the wisest and sagest of all our friends in the old gang in high school, once said to me after Zed broke my heart one of a hundred times, don't ask why and you won't get lied to. Except that I only want one thing more than to ask you why, but also to tell you how much all of what you did fucked me up and how much it hurt. Now I finally feel like I can. Back then you were too fragile and I would be hated for it and I refused to catch any more blame for something I didn't cause. It took me years of therapy up to this point just to realize that most of the abuse I got in my youth was from people mostly the adults in my life, lashing out at me for being angry at them for something horrible they did to me. It was the unraveling of my marriage to Leaf and to a lesser extent Boris that really teased this out of me in therapy. So many gifts and silver linings from what occurred between us are surrounded by the notion that I largely avoided that dynamic with you that I did my best to move on and leave it all behind rather than cause you any pain by confronting you. However, that would also mean confronting the pain of anything I may have done. Because I'm not a total narcissist and no one here is 100% at fault. 
I'm putting myself now in my in that body of my confused little 18-year-old self, and she only wants one thing, for you to love her, to want her, to want the things she wanted for you. She had that for just long enough to believe she had it for good in some tangible and long-lasting format because she believed you. I talk to Walter through texts and occasionally phone calls, and he hasn't brought you up in years. Even that friendship has moved on. We have houses and kids and spouses and careers that take up the entirety of our conversations. He hasn't mentioned you at all since Letitia left. Up to that point, I had largely forgotten, and I really believe that for such a long stretch of time, from my bottle of champagne at the lake to the moment I got Walter's phone call that I had moved on, that I had very nearly forgotten. In fact, I was able to move on because Letitia had you, and you wanted to be with her and raise kids, because if you didn't want that, then you wouldn't be. Plus, Life was awash at that time with dating and moving and trying and failing and overworking and marrying and raising a small child and fighting for whatever I could get or fighting to hang on to what I had. Questioning any of that in any kind of constructive way, anywhere near the time Letitia left, you felt so wrong. Even though dropping a nuke bomb and telling my husband that I wanted to leave to walk away and leave him and Rachel and my job and everything all behind seemed somehow more logical, more advanced an option than being loved, accepted by someone willing to work with me, to work it out, to hear what I had to say, and make sure I healed in safety. No one had ever thought to give me the space to do that before, least of all me, and of all the men I've ever been with, only Ronan did that. 